Our Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. For they, before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not, they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thank you, James. In our New Testament reading, in which you will hear echoes of that prophecy that James just read from Isaiah, our reading comes from the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 21, verses 1 through 8. Listen, please, for God's word to us today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. <clears throat> to the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things and I will be their God and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. 
All right, now I know it's not nice to gloat, particularly after I get up here and forget to turn on the sound. Who's he to gloat? But I am going to, so I beg your forgiveness in advance. If you have been with us for our summer services, you know that our sermon series has addressed various new things which Scripture highlights. We've had messages about a new song, a new life, a new vision, a new spirit, and last week, a new catch if you go deep enough. I wasn't thinking he was going to be here today, but I'm sorry, Pastor Mark <laughs> and Pastor Stacy, wherever you are this fine Sunday morning, but I win. I don't have just one new thing to talk about. I have new everything to talk about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, the capital city of God's redeemed people, the perfect home in which Christ will live with His church, His bride, forever, the place where we will join the saints in worshiping and adoring the Lamb who was slain, as depicted for us in the cover art on your bulletin today from Van Ex. Um, altarpiece. See, says God in our passage, I am making all things new. You can't beat that. With this promise by God to make all things new, the drama of the entire biblical story is being brought to a close. The big story of the Bible, or the meta-narrative as I teach my students, I won't call on one of them to tell you what it is, but the meta narrative, they need to know big words like that because they pay to go to our school. <clears throat> the big story of the Bible creation, fall, redemption, ending in this new heaven and new earth begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with divine creation, a creation that God deemed very good. By the time we get to Genesis 3, sin has entered the world and things are not very good at all. In the next seven chapters, we move quickly from Adam and Eve's disobedience to Cain's murder of Abel to a world that's so corrupt, God decides to cleanse it with a flood. And finally, to that height of human arrogance that we call the Tower of Babel. And it is at this point, immediately after that story, that God does something new and something quite strange, if you ask me. He chooses a particular people to join with Him in His grand plan to restore all of creation to its intended goodness. God will bless these people, and they in turn will use these blessings to help reverse the curse of sin by blessing all nations of the earth. The divine promise, this divine promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 has been described by Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright as the heart of the gospel and the beginning of mission. That is, God will restore all of creation to its intended goodness. That is good news indeed. And God's people are called to be part 
of that restoration project. There's the mission. Central to this divine plan of redemption, of course, is Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, through whom we have atonement for and salvation from our sins and the promise of everlasting life in this new heaven and earth that we read about in Revelation 21. When we finally get there, the presence of evil is forever banished, and the prophecy of Isaiah we read today is fulfilled. We will no longer hurt or destroy, and sin with its fatal consequence, death, will be no more. What a hopeful and comforting vision. It's no wonder that these first verses of Revelation 21 are frequently read at Christian funerals. But if we leave our use of this passage today to those times when we need comforting, we will miss completely what they have to say to us when we become too comfortable. And we will fail to see in these, this passage our calling as heirs to the promise of blessing to Abraham. Because along with that goes the call to participate with God in the building of this new heaven and earth. You see, as though as people of faith, we are justifiably filled with hope and comforted in knowing that things will turn out all right in the end, we should also be challenged by our passage's stark reminder that things right now are not well at all. <clears throat> However we get our news, whether it's over the internet, television, or the good old-fashioned newspaper, we see abundant evidence that things are not as they should be and are in need of being made new now. Violence everywhere, violence against black motorists, violence against white policemen, violence against people on a plane or those just waiting to catch one, violence against people enjoying themselves at a nightclub. And then there's sickness that comes from little mosquitoes and poverty that comes from too little amidst too much. Everywhere we see enmity where love should be. So very many things which need to be made new, just like the world into which Jesus spoke through this revelation to John almost 2,000 years ago. Christ's message then and his message now is not one of escapism, which ignores the present reality in favor of a one of these days happy ending. Rather, the message was and is a call to conquer that present reality by joining Christ in his mission to bring God's kingdom to this world as it is in heaven. We do pray for that every week, don't we? And when we pray, are we sitting there thinking, well, God's going to take care of it. I just have to sit and wait. No, we're not. Or as I tell my students, sometimes to their dismay and occasionally to the dismay of parents, heaven is not our ultimate destination. It's not some place where we go up to live some disembodied existence in the clouds. 
Playing harps sounds boring, right? No, the Bible teaches and we confess in our creeds that when Jesus comes again, we will be bodily raised to live eternally with our God who comes down to dwell with us. Verse 3 today tells us He comes down to dwell with us in a restored and transformed world. He has come down to live with us. The same language is used when it speaks of God in the tabernacle, in the midst of His people at Mount Sinai. God has come and dwelt with us before in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt with us. Well, God, we are told today, comes down to dwell with us in this restored and transformed world but it is a world that we are called to help rescue and change in the present. Not that God needs our help to get this done. My brother Phil Howery out here and I, we spend some time in prison. It's all voluntary, of course. But well-known prison minister, Jack Murph the Surf Murphy. Wally, I think, knows him. Not to call you out either, but I will. Um, Murph, very, very interesting life. 20 years on death row. But having been spared, he spent the rest of his life going back and preaching in prisons. And he says, no, it's not that God needs us to help him build this world. He has, of course, used rocks and jackasses in the past So it's not that He needs us, and it's not that we can successfully or completely do the job until Christ returns. We will need the return of the Son of God to make this world back to the kind of place that God intended. But we are called in the meantime to join in that mission of rebuilding. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, no relationship actually to the previously mentioned Christopher Wright, as he puts it, we really understand it when we begin to appreciate that our salvation in Christ, as breathtakingly wonderful as that may be, is not an end in itself, but it is a means to God's greater end of redeeming a fallen creation, taking the blessing of salvation that has been given to us and joining God's work in rebuilding the fallen creation now. To put it another way, what we do in the present will live on into God's future. Again, what we do in the present will live on into God's future. If we don't see things this way, we can become complacent in our Christian lives and ignore the things around us that need to be made new now. Worse still, we can perpetuate or even seek to justify things that have gone very wrong. For example, some well-educated ministers and some not-so-well-educated ones, I should add, in the 18th and 19th century America told African slaves, just be quiet and behave 
and listen to the Apostle Paul who tells you to be obedient to your masters and as they interpreted that, because you are God-ordained to serve the white man in this world. But don't fear, they said. You'll be free when God makes all things new. To quote one Thomas Bacon of Maryland, if you have nothing in this world but hard labor with your coarse food and clothing, you have a place provided for you in heaven when you die and go into the next world. We are appalled, I hope, at that use of our scriptures, but have we ourselves ever been tempted to hear Jesus say, you will always have the poor with you, and take that as permission to accept the status quo until he comes again and makes everything all right for them? Now, my prisoner friends, and I should say that's not the guys I used to play baseball with, but the guys that I worship with, and my brother Phil and others worship with on Monday nights, they have taught me a couple of valuable lessons about what it means to participate with God in the building of His kingdom in this world, rather than that leaving that mission for some grand end times miracle. Like early America's slaves or the poor that are always with us, these guys find themselves in a position where they could easily say, thank you, Jesus, I'm saved, and I know I'll be with you someday in a place without crying and pain like this place, in a place with better air conditioning. I may have made a mess out of this life, but the next one is what I'm all about. People in the position of the guys we spend our time with in prison could easily be tempted to say that. Let's take a fellow named Lee, who we prayed out of prison a couple of weeks ago. And praying them out does not mean, Lord God, we pray that you just zip them out of here through a miracle. No, they are people who have been granted permission to leave before we come back the next time. And these are guys that we've been with, but we don't always know their story. We don't ask where they have failed. They don't ask us where we have failed, thank goodness. But we ask them to give some words of wisdom to the people that are left behind. Turns out Lee is in his 50s, and as he said, he spent half his life in prison. And I think I audibly gasped. Seemed like such a nice man. Spent over... 25 years in prison. It would be awfully easy for him to say, well, this life and this world for me is shot, but I'm glad I'm a believer because it's going to be better in the world to come. But no, he told us in leaving that place that he was bound and determined to help rebuild the world that was fallen around him rebuild it one broken relationship at a time, bound and determined to make things right with those whose hearts he had broken, bound and determined to be a better husband, father, and son, to be the kind of husband, father, and son that God intended in creation, and he wasn't going to wait till Jesus comes again. 
So many of these guys, each in his own way, sees renewal in this world and of this world, whether in little ways or big ones, as his mission, as we should see it, as our mission. And it's not always just when they get out. Countless times when we've called for push-ups, you know, words of praise, we go around the group gathered and say, tell us something good that somebody did for you. And there's not silence. There are countless praises for fellow inmates telling us what one man has done for another to help someone else in that prison physically, emotionally, or spiritually. I think here, for example, of Alex, who was also prayed out alongside with Lee a couple of weeks ago, and who has redeemed his time in the prison by serving as the chaplain's assistant, daily blessing that chaplain, daily blessing the inmates with whom he serves, all to the end of making that prison and its inhabitants new now. And whether or not their vision in this regard is actually fulfilled, many of the guys want to come back to minister to those left behind as soon as they get out and as soon as the prison system will let them come back. Voluntarily, that is. They'll take them back any time. But as volunteers, they want to come back. That's their first thought when they get out. About half of our group of volunteers Bill and I and Wally, when he goes with us, we're all in the minority. We're the only ones that haven't been to prison. At least half our group are people who have spent significant time in the prisons, but they want nothing more than to come back behind bars as free men and women to pursue their mission of emptying these places in the name of Jesus Christ in this world not waiting for the one to come. The point is that whether we are serving one person in need or seeking to rid the world of modern-day slavery, sex trafficking, hunger, or disease, we are at work with God in renewing, in God's renewing activity in this world. We are not waiting around for God to make all things new. We are fulfilling our Christian calling to continue a rebuilding process that began with Abraham and that will reach completion in Christ's return. Now, the glorious picture that we read in Revelation this morning is there all the time, giving us hope and comfort when we need it and as we work toward it. C.S. Lewis, in the quote that's on your bulletin cover today, which you can wait to read till I'm done, it's almost there. But he, using the voice of his Narnian lion Aslan, understands that the future times, the end times, will indeed be something like we've never seen, like a book in which every chapter is better than the one before. We love to hear words like that. They do give us comfort and hope. But Lewis also got that it was not just about the next world. He wrote an essay 
called the world's last night. And this is what he had to say. Happy are those whom that last night finds laboring in their vocations, whether they were merely going out to feed the pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil. The curtain has indeed now fallen. Those pigs will never, in fact, be fed. The great campaign against white slavery or governmental tyranny will never, in fact, proceed to victory. No matter, you were at your post when the inspection came. And so I ask this morning, what will your post be?